0: So, I have a good friend who's a um, philosophy professor out at a university in Kentucky. And he and I go back a long time, and from time to time we get a visit again. And he's a wonderful Christian man. He sees his calling in life to help young people to think critically and help young people to be able to discern even good from evil, right from wrong, and to use philosophy for those purposes. I'm so grateful for what he does at a secular university. He teaches at a school that's really similar to UNK. It's a school that gets most of its um, students from in-state and really, really a good school that educates and strengthens those students for their future. Anyway, uh, visiting with him recently, and he was sharing the discouragement that that he felt recently because he was uh, grading papers that uh, were were sent back from a summer class that he was teaching, an online summer class, and had 30 or so students, and the first three students' papers that he graded, two of the first three papers, it was clear to him that the students were using ChatGPT. You know what that is? All the young people in the room know what it is. If you don't know what it is, ask a young person. After, (laughs) It's an AI that kind of helps you generate the... Information for a memo or a paper or whatever it might be. And Professor C, okay, this is consistent data that you would get off ChatGPT. So they could see it pretty quickly. He noticed that two of the first three papers well, were using ChatGPT. Uh, he continued on grading these papers for 30 students. And the postscript at the end was over 25% of the class was caught using ChatGPT. The irony of it all is this he was teaching an ethics class. (laughs) He's teaching an ethics class, foundations of moral ethics, and over 25% of the students are lying, cheating, and stealing on their paper. Uh, Like, what's up with that? My guess is, if you were to ask these students, is it okay to lie, cheat, and steal, and they were not procrastinating, they were not staying up way too late, and especially so if mom and dad were in the room, they would all say that lying, cheating, and stealing is wrong, right? Right, okay, thank you. I'm pretty sure they would all, especially if mom and dad were in the room, right? (laughs) They would all say, that that's wrong. In fact, I dare say that we would all argue that lying, cheating, and stealing is wrong. So what gives there? Why does this proliferate? The reason it proliferates, probably a couple different reasons. One is this, humans have a remarkable capacity to self-justify their own behaviors, Okay, we have a great ability to kind of put blinders over our own eyes and to rationalize what we do while criticizing what other people do. Anybody else? Okay, this is true of us. That's that's one main reason. Another reason that so many students are struggling with this now is because there is a common temptation that is found for all of us. Here's the big idea from today's passage. The battle against temptation is universal. The battle against temptation is common to us all, right? Okay, now's a good time to say, right, Adrian? Right, Adrian? Okay. The battle against temptation is common to us all, right? All right, yeah, it's common to us all. We all struggle with temptation in all different kinds of ways, I would say the number of ways that we struggle with temptation are as diverse and varied as the number of people in this room, but the fact that we all struggle with temptation is a universal. We all do, and so we have to learn slowly but surely over time how to fight that. So open with me now to 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, You can find that using the table of contents at the start of your Bible, but it's over in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John then the book of Acts and Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13, is where we'll be today. And what 1 Corinthians 10 does is it looks back at our ancestors and how they struggled well with temptations and how they failed, and then it looks forward from our ancestors and says, here's how you can look at your temptations and perhaps do better, though, than your ancestors. Okay, with that, let's read these 13 verses. You also see them up on the screen. I do encourage you, if you have a Bible... I encourage you to bring it, but because it's powerful to mark up the Bible as we continue to go through for 1 Corinthians and to see the progress though, that we make at understanding the scriptures. That uh, kind of three-dimensional learning really kind of gets it in our brain in a different way. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. That's speaking of the Red Sea that God parted so that... The Israelites could pass through the Red Sea. They are all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the same spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So they go through the wilderness after the exodus and most of them... Don't make it to the promised land. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So I circled in my Bible the word example. The reason for all of these different episodes that we're about to look at in this passage is to give us examples to prevent us from setting our hearts on what is evil and instead turning our hearts toward what is good. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think that you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. He'll provide a way out for each of us such that we can endure it. Now, these different examples that are given here are typologies. A typology is something that you see a story in the Old Testament, an event in the Old Testament that foreshadows something that's going to come in the New Testament and foreshadows something for us about the character of God. And if you understand this, you'll understand much more of the New Testament and how it frequently quotes the Old Testament. Okay, Typology is oftentimes a recognition that here is the work of God in the Old Testament and they see that it was Christ in it. For example, this one though that stated, so they're going through the, the wilderness and they're getting thirsty. They're begging for, for water. Moses strikes the, the rock. Water gushes forth this great stream and all the people drink uh, this fresh water. And it says here, who is the rock? The rock was Christ. The rock was the pre-incarnate Christ there. And so also our rock is, is Christ. Our spiritual rock is Christ who says, when you are thirsty, come to me and drink. When you are hungry, come to me and eat. Okay, We feast on the goodness of God. Okay, That's a typology. Seeing something in the past, and because God's character never changes, we can anticipate that the same God that we just sang about had the same character back in 1200 B.C., As he did in 52 AD during the time of this writing in Corinth, as he does in 2023, Kearney, Nebraska. And so we take these stories as a gift from God as warnings for us. They're warnings for us that we would repent and not perish. This is the purpose of so many Old Testament typologies that God places in the scriptures that we would be like those kids that our parents wanted us to be, that we could learn from other people's mistakes and not fall into the same mistakes ourselves. Isn't that what you teach your kids? Right, so God's a really, really good teacher, and that's what he's trying to teach the Corinthians here. And so he used these warnings from Old Testament history well, with the Israelites wandering throughout through the wilderness such that they would repent and not perish. And likewise for us, He wants us to repent and not perish and uses these as warnings for us to to that end. Now, a great um, activity to do, we don't have time to do it this morning, but a great activity to do would be to look at all these different typologies in verses 1 through 13 and then look on the side of your Bible at these cross-references or down beneath the Scripture test text at different cross references and go back into your bible tonight or this week and read about all of those episodes that paul is now quoting here that helps you understand the connections between the old and the new testament as we do that when we see these typologies though these examples in scripture again we can't go through all of them though this morning but there's five or six of them here here's another example he's challenging his church Paul is here challenging his church, please stop whining over secondary issues. We've talked about this a lot in 1 Corinthians. He's telling his church, stop whining over secondary issues like what you eat and what you drink and all different other kinds of secondary issues which we don't have time for today. And so... To warn them about whining, he quotes back to Numbers 11, 4 through 6. And here's that. It says, the Israelites started wailing when they were in the desert. And they said, in their whining, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt at no cost. Yes, we were slaves, but at least we had fish back there. Also, we remember the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlics. These are the very things that our kids whine for at home. They'd like some more leeks than onions and garlics. Okay, that's what these Israelites are whining for. We remember this about back in Egypt, but now we've lost our appetite and we never get anything but this manna, which God is miraculously sending down from heaven each and every day so that we would survive and not die in the desert. Oh, whine, whine, whine. I, I mean, can you believe this stuff? God's just part of the Red Sea for them. He's providing manna every day for them. He brought them out of slavery. He's bringing them into the promised land, and they say, Moses, you can't even get us some meat. You're so annoying. Again, the point is back to the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians 10 because people there, as we've talked about a lot, are whining to him. We can't eat the meat at the idol festivals and we have to think about the conscience of our weaker brother and sister. How do you like my whiny voice? You like that? (laughs) We have to think about the conscience of our weaker brother who doesn't feel free to eat the meat which we know that we are free to eat in the privacy of our own homes Oh, Paul, you're so hard on us. And Paul says, remember what happened to your ancestors and stop grumbling over little secondary things like food and drink. Now, fortunately, um, this is not something that Americans struggle with at all. And I'll stop right there. (laughs) <laughs> again, you, you can go on and read all these different examples in this passage. But I think probably the most potent example is here in verse 6 and 7. We're going to spend a little bit more time on that. Look again at verses 6 and 7, 1 Corinthians 10. It says, Now these things occurred, again, as examples, to keep us setting our hearts on evil things as they, our ancestors, did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry so where is that written anyone know anyone do any study on this last week the context is exodus 32 moses is on mount sinai he's meeting with god for 40 days He's receiving the Ten Commandments that would be the charter for the people of Israel, that would make them a unique and distinct people as they go into their promised land. And after a few weeks, as God has provided again and again, again bringing them out of slavery in Egypt and providing for them each and every day, God is up there, Moses is up there meeting with God, and down on the bottom of the mountain, the people are engaging in revelry. You remember that story, I'm sure. It goes on like this, Exodus 32. Aaron took what they handed him and made it into an idol. So he says, ladies, take off all your earrings. He takes all those earrings and nose rings and whatever other rings, puts them together, and he turns them into an idol. He cast it in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods. Israel who brought you up out of Egypt. (laughs) This thing that we just made. It's the one that did it. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and he announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. We're going to party. So the next day, the people rose early and they sacrificed burnt offerings and they presented fellowship offerings. And afterward, here's the quote that Paul uses, afterward they sat down to eat and drink, and got up to indulge in revelry. So they're tired of God not giving them what they want just when they want it, and they've had to wait for like I don't know, maybe three weeks of unanswered prayer. And because they've had to wait for a few weeks, they decide, okay, let's let's fashion something else, and then we'll bow down to that, and we'll engage in revelry, which is code for we'll have a big drunken promiscuous fest as we also practice idolatry to this golden calf. Verses 7 and 8 tell the rest of the story. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and your brother Aaron has said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So like, they're recreating God in their own image. They're making God into something that they can manipulate and control, something they can put in a box, something that does what they want God to do. That's what they're doing. And what they want to do is kind of dismiss all that God has told them to do, and engage in revelry and idolatry and all the sexual practices of the surrounding nations that they've seen. Now, where do we do this today? It seems to me in our culture today, there's a great temptation to do this with sexuality. To say, God, I know what you've told me, but like, that was way back in 50 A.D., And that cannot apply here in 2023. Like, come on. That's so old-fashioned, God. You must not actually mean what you clearly say in these scriptures. So I'm going to change it, and I'll decide. That's making God in your own image. That's making yourself God. Or how about like with money and the things that money buys? How about with greed? Like, I know you tell me, God, to live beneath my means. I know you tell me to practice restraint. I know you tell me that covetousness, which is being jealous of what other people have, such that you have to have what other people have, is so bad you list it amongst your top ten. But dang it, God, I want to buy whatever big boy toys I want to buy. And nobody's going to tell me otherwise. And how are you going to tell me that everything I have is ultimately yours and I'm to live with frugality and generosity with all that you have given me? Dang it, God, I want what I want. Does anyone do that today? Yeah, that's, that is making God in your own image and saying, I will be the ultimate arbitrator of truth. Now, the Israelites do this repeatedly until God says to them, you were intended to be a holy people. I wanted you to be a holy, distinct people that would be a contrast to the materialistic, polytheistic, promiscuous people that will be all around you in the promised land, but you refuse to do so, and so I'm going to discipline you. And he does so harshly with the Hebrews. And he's given this very strong warning to the Corinthians, even though they also were in a really ugly place, so that they would repent and they would turn back. But again, the purpose in all of this is not to scare us. God used these typologies to warn us so that we repent and not perish. And you got to know that even through all of that joke, that junk, God still did not give up on the people of Israel, right? Like, remember, as we studied at the beginning of this year with God's name, remember the name of God, which God reveals to Moses and for the people of Israel after they did that golden calf incident. Even so, God still says to him and still says to the people, I am the Lord, the Lord, My name is Yahweh, Yahweh. I am the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining my love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet I do not leave the guilty unpunished. This is God. He's he's both. He's holy and he's just and he's pure and he's loving and gracious and compassionate and forgiving and he's faithful. And your God will not quit on you. He will not give up on you. He's faithful. And he refused to quit on Israel, even with all of these things that they did. He's faithful. And he refused to quit on Corinth. He was faithful to them as well. But these are warnings through these stories that God is holy and God don't play. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. So, all this leads us to our application from this passage, verses 12 and 13. So, if you think you're standing firm, and this is what I've underlined in my Bible again, and put a big note on it. Adrian, if you think that you're standing firm, be careful, Adrian, that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you, which is not common to many others in this room, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, and when you are tempted, he will provide a way out that you can endure it, that you can stand up under it. Oh, like, we, we got to remember that these folks in Corinth, like as messy as they are, they're just surrounded by a mess all the time there in Corinth. There was a saying about Corinth that went like this. Not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. It's like, you better be really careful if you go there. Corinth was Las Vegas before Las Vegas. Have you been to Las Vegas? Okay, like if you've been there, you saw some things that you can never unsee. Right? Right? I haven't been to Vegas, but I've been to New Orleans, and I saw some things that I can never unsee. Like, they scar your brain. They scar your brain. They etch themselves deep in there. And this is what the Corinthian Christians are surrounded with all the time. And so Paul is wisely and lovingly saying to them, if you think you're strong, be careful so that you do not fall. Fall. And you will be tempted all around because you are in Corinth and you are living amidst a culture that has cast off all restraints. You're going to be around greediness and lust and idolatry all the time, which makes it all the more important that you plan how you will win the battle. And friends, I just want to tell you the simple truth is Corinth and Vegas have come to Kearney, Nebraska. And if you don't think they have, you have blinders on your eyes. No offense. Corinth and Vegas have come to Kearney, Nebraska, and here is why. We now live in a postmodern culture. Postmodernism is basically the idea that there is no absolute object of truth. And many, many Christians are living under the illusion that I decide. I get to decide what's best. Okay, I will decide on everything. Okay, so if my church does something I don't like, I'll decide. <laughs> many Christians are living that way now if the Bible tells me something that I don't like I'll decide well who then is the arbiter who then is the judge it's you it's not God that's postmodernism. and friends once you lose objective morality as from God I'm telling you anything goes anything goes And then you have Corinth and Vegas. It may not be as egregious as Corinth and and Vegas, but you do have Corinth and Vegas, the other right here in town. So we, we need to admit this reality that temptations are very common. They're common to all of us. They're common all over our culture. But God provides a way out. And it's up to us to choose. It's up to us to practice restraint in a culture that's kind of cast out all restraint. It's ours to choose. Now, this passage is saying that there's no temptation that's come to you that isn't common to many other people in this room, which means to me, like if I know that I'm struggling with something that you also are struggling with, or you're struggling with something that other people are struggling with, what that means to me is this right here should be a condemnation free zone. Say that with me. This is a condemnation-free zone. One more time. This should be a condemnation-free zone. Do you believe that? And your life group should be a condemnation-free zone. Like, it should be this kind of zone where we say, I'm struggling in this area. And I can trust that as I say that to my friend, he won't say, you did what? No, instead he'll say, you too? You mean I'm not the only one? Or maybe I'm not struggling in that specific area, but I can relate because I'm struggling in another area. In a condemnation-free zone, that can happen. But unfortunately, many people get in their mind that the church is the place that I have to go to get all together before I even enter in the, do- in the doors. And if you think the church is a place where you have to get all together before you enter in the doors, then in all likelihood, well, when you come here, you're already a place of isolation, shame, and hiding. Okay, what we need is the church would be the place where it's okay to not be okay, that we come to the church and we could share with someone else that I'm struggling here, and it's like a sigh of relief that I can share that because other people will not condemn me in that. This is critical for us that we would reinforce that community value on a regular basis here at Carney E Free Church. When we say every person matters, we mean you can come as you are and we will not condemn you because we're struggling in some area too. Okay? This is our communal responsibility. Friends, if we don't do that for each other, here's what happens. Look at this little spiral up on the screen. This is a very common spiral that is described in the Bible. That if we don't do that for each other, what we do is we feel this isolation related to our temptations. I'm the only one that struggles with this. I'm alone. And because I'm alone, I feel shame. Okay, if I know other people struggle with it as well, then maybe the problem is not fundamentally me. Maybe there's a sin issue that we need to work on together. But if I feel like I'm the only one, then I think the problem is fundamentally all about me. I'm the problem which is the definition of shame. And out of that shame, what happens? You go into more hiding. And in more hiding is more secretive sin. And out of that secrecy, out of that hiding, here's what always develops. Distance between you and other people and distance between you and God. And the way we counteract that is being the kind of people that take on this communal responsibility that acknowledges there's no temptation that comes to you that's not common to others in this room. And therefore, when you're struggling, I won't respond with shock and awe. I'll be your fellow traveler. And we'll go after goodness and righteousness together. This is extremely hard to do, again, in a culture that is cast off restraint. And so we have to do it together, and we have to really choose to fight the battle. And so as I close here, I'm going to share a little bit of my own personal story here in this past year. I'm going to give you four letters that can help provide a rubric for fighting your battle, whatever it might be right now. And we all have one, okay? It's just the A, B, C, Ds of fighting against temptation. Here's the first one. The first thing you have to do is simply admit your temptation. You have to be honest with yourself. As I said previously, there's an incredible temptation to self-justify and to lie to ourselves. You have to admit to yourself this area of temptation. Admit to yourself this area of weakness or even sin. That's the starting point. So the past three, four years has been really difficult in ministry. I don't need any sympathy. That's not why I'm saying this. It just has been. Okay? There's a lot of pastors. There's a lot of missionaries that are leaving the ministry altogether these past several years. Um. It's built up for me over this past year. And um, that difficulty in ministry, combined with some difficulties in family and a couple health concerns, have built up in such a way over the past 12 or 13 months that all of a sudden I started realizing a few months ago, I started to see something that was growing in my heart that was unfamiliar to me previously. I've struggled with many different temptations, all different kinds of stuff, but this was new. And all of a sudden I realized that there was something that was growing over my heart that was like a crust of bitterness. I was starting to get a little bit hard. I was starting to guard myself against criticism and negativity and whatever it might be. And this crust of bitterness bitterness started to develop over my heart. It took me a while to recognize it until finally, about six weeks ago, I just had to fall to my knees and get real face-to-face with myself and honest to God and honest to myself that something ugly was happening in my soul and I needed to do business with it. That was the start, admitting it to myself. From that the next step was bring in the holy spirit. God does not intend us to fight these battles on our own. In fact, the Bible tells us that none of us are strong enough on our own to fight our spiritual battles. That we need the holy spirit's strength with us on a day in and day out basis to fight our spiritual battles. That we do not pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but in fact, if we want to gain holiness, it's all about leaning into the holy spirit. I love the way Basil puts it way back in the 4th century, one of the early church fathers. He says it this way, it is impossible to live a life of holiness without the Spirit of God. It's impossible. It would be easier for an army to continue its maneuvers without a general. Or for a choir to sing on key without its director than it is for a Christian to live a life of holiness without the Holy Spirit of God. And and, and so, like about six weeks ago, as God revealed this to me, and I finally admitted it, then I started to ask God, Holy Spirit, would you please come help? Would would you help me in this battle? And so, day after day, every day for the last six weeks, that's what I've been doing. God, would you please remove this bitterness that started to develop in my heart? And as I was praying through that, God brought back to mind an old Bible verse which I had memorized years ago. Which goes like this, do not let any root of bitterness enter into your heart which defiles many. Oh man, what a good description that is. Isn't that bitterness? Bitterness defiles you and it defiles people around you. And I just said, I do not want to become a bitter old man. God forbid And so Holy Spirit, would you please come in and would you begin to uproot those little tentacles of bitterness that have started to grow in my heart and would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, replace those with tentacles and deeper roots of joy because part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is joy. Okay, and he started to do that in me over these past six weeks. It's been a beautiful thing. I'm so grateful. Praise God for what he is doing, not for what I am doing. The next step for me after bringing in the Holy Spirit has been confiding in a few safe friends. You got to confide in a few others to realize that you're not alone, and that blunts the power of the temptation. It blunts the power of shame in your life. So one of the things we're doing right now as a pastoral staff, not just pastoral staff, our entire staff here at the church, is we're going through a 10-week study called Rooted the rooted experience it's more than a bible study it's an experience that you do together and so we've broken our staff into three different kind of life groups for the summer in which we're going through this study and it's really really powerful for individual for group and even for church wide discipleship in fact it's so powerful we're going to do it as an entire church though this fall I'm going to be preaching on it. Our life groups are going to be doing it, at least those life groups that choose to do it. It is fantastic for bonding a life group together. And like, it's been so sweet in seven weeks of doing this, how my coworkers have become more and more my friends. As we've been sharing life together and talking about various struggles, and as luck would have it, one of the studies was overcoming strongholds in your life. Thank you, God. And so here's this thing that's starting to become a little bit of a stronghold in my heart which I was previously unfamiliar with and I decided I'm going to confide in a few friends and share this with my rooted life group. The only person I'd really shared this with was my wife. And I shared it with these friends and you know what they did? They loved me. They loved me. They prayed for me. And I wept. And they didn't tell me I'm the only one. And they came around me. And they're for me. And I'm for them and theirs. And their temptations are different than mine. But at base, they're the same. We all have temptations. And that's what's common for all of us. And that is so powerful for reducing shame and hiding. The last word here in the ABCDs is don't quit. Don't quit. You're going to fail. You're human. You'll be tempted again. Temptations are common every day. Corinth and Vegas have come to Kearney. You're going to fail. But you'll fail less often. Because God will help you get back up. Your community will help you. The Holy Spirit will help you provide a way out more and more and so you'll gain more and more victory. And in the past six or seven weeks, I want you to know I've had way more victory over this than I did in the previous few months when I first recognized it, by far. But there's still been moments of failure where I felt that crust of bitterness over my chest and I had to fight against it, okay? The key is don't quit. Don't give up. Go back to the Holy Spirit and ask him for help Be careful to stand lest you fall, as Paul says here. And then day after day, as we engage the battle though this way, we'll gain more and more victory. But friends, we gotta choose to fight. It's a dog fight with your soul. And you gotta choose to fight. Admit where you're tempted bring in the Holy Spirit confide in a couple good friends that you can trust and don't quit get back up by the power of God and pursue the holiness that God desires you to have oh Father we need your help our gracious Father how we need your help There's nobody on this stage that is anywhere near perfect. There's nobody on this stage that could ever cast a stone on another. In fact, there's no temptation that's come to any of us, which is not very common to so many of us. And for some of us, it might be lying or cheating or bitterness or lust or greed or covetousness or anger. It could be gossip or judgmentalism. It could be loose lips that ruin ships. Who knows what it is for you? But don't allow this moment where the Holy Spirit might be whispering to you to pass sit with him in that and you can begin right now by doing those first two letters I admit to you God what you already know about me (laughs) and so as much as anything I admit it to myself is that you right now do you have something you need to just admit to God and admit to yourself would you just raise your hand if that's you right now So many of us. Thank you, God. So many of us would raise our hand right now and admit that. And as we do, we bring in the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you intercede for us with groans that words cannot even express. Would you please help us? Would you show us Bible verses that would help us in our battle? Would you give us strength where we're weak? Would you even give us the courage to confide in a friend or two? And Lord, help us not to quit. To get back up when we fail. To trust in you. Because you want us to become the kinds of good, virtuous, holy, and happy people. Who are living more and more like Christ. We love you, Lord. Thank you that you don't quit on us. Please be at work in us now. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray together.